last week we, we began a series called Lord, Teach Us. And I'd invite you, uh, you know, if the sermon gets boring or later, you can read about the, the overview of the series on the back of your bulletin. But in sum, let me just say that while we're acknowledging that the Lord Jesus teaches, He does so for the maturity of our soul so that we would grow up in Him and, and, and what that He pours into us would bring about love and obedience. His teaching, Jesus' teaching, isn't just info dump for our minds. We need to acknowledge that. We need to say that because we live in an info dump age. I mean, as I'm speaking, you can get online and fact check anything you want, right? You can probably live stream a better sermon on the very text. <laughs> Just for my own ego, wait till after. <laughs> but no, you can do that. You can, you can hear anything. You can find out anything. Uh, but hear our hearts. The teaching of Christ is, is not to be for entertainment. It's not to... Uh, so that we might accumulate knowledge about God. It's so that we might know God. We might know and worship Him. And so our hearts through this series is that we would be a church growing as disciples and that, and that the word in the Gospel of Luke would f- throw fuel onto the flame of who we are as disciples of Christ on mission for the kingdom of God. Uh, that's our desire. And so Bill kicked us off last week in in Luke chapter 11, the first 13 verses, where the disciples come come up to Jesus after observing him praying. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. We saw how prayer is a conduit for intimacy and relationship with the Father, how prayer is empowerment uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so today we're picking up where we left off in Luke chapter 11 beginning with verse 14. I'd invite you to stand if you're able. As I read the word, we stand in honor of God's word, that it's living, active, that God's word is the authority, no human being, but God's eternal word. And so we're in Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 14 through 23. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, it's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebul, but if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe, But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man has trusted and divides up the plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together.
Father, we acknowledge when we come to your word, there, there are all types of obstacles. In our own heart, from outside, there is the obstacle of uh, hundreds of years of history, of cultural distance, Lord, but most of all, just the hardness and the distractedness of our own mind and soul, and so we pray that you would be at work. We pray, I pray that nothing I would say would be a distraction, but that you would be at work in our minds and our hearts to respond to your word, to know who you are, and to follow. And so, Lord, bless this time with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so, in this passage, we see people who are responding to God's power on display in Jesus. That's what's happening. We're, we're seeing it, several groups of people responding to God's power that they are seeing in Jesus. And there are two recorded responses in the passage. But the one thing that makes this difficult for us as we read, as we listen, is that I'm not sure many of us fall in either camp of the type of responses. The first one is in verse 14, the response to Jesus. A man's life is radically changed. That this passage is so short on the miracle and long on the interpretation that we might skip over this point. A man's life is radically changed. It's easy to overlook that. We don't know his name, this man who is mute. But let's personalize him a little bit. Let's call him Jacob for, for a second here. I mean, imagine he, this man, Jacob, he's your brother. He's your, he's your cousin. You've grown up with him. You saw his relatively normal childhood, and then you saw his life snatched away from him, maybe at age 15, by this horrible, you don't even know what to call it, a d- disease, mental break, demon, you, you don't know, but his, his life was snatched away from him, and he's been like this for 10 years, and instead of speaking with him over the table, instead of laughing with him as you go to the market, and instead of uh, enjoying him, you, you have to read his eyes and learn his body language. And instead of in enjoying a joke or, or walking together in the market, he's by your side, silent, despairing, ashamed, tormented, a prisoner in his own mind. The, Matthew's account of this story says he was, he was mute and deaf. Jacob used to spend so much time in the field singing. Everyone was his friend, but now he was a tormented soul. And then Jesus, right? And then he encounters God's power through Jesus, and he's healed. His life has changed. If you're his brother, if you're his cousin, if you're his father, if you know him, you are amazed. You're overjoyed. His life is radically changed. If we see this, we're grateful. If we see the work of God on display, we're grateful. We're, we're amazed. Some of us are there. We see Jesus working and we're amazed. But even in the text, not everyone has this response, right? There's a different vantage point in verse 15 and 16. Imagine you watch this happen, and instead of being amazed, you think, this is too much. You're a Pharisee, and and you're threatened by Jesus' claims to life and truth because if this miracle worker is who he says he is, then everything in my life is upended. Everything I've given myself to has changed. Everything I've stood for is on shaky ground if, if he is who he says he is. So I feel threatened. And when I watch him work, fear takes over. 
And what do I do when I'm threatened? I try to discredit. I try to, I try to run away. I try to uh, discount. Ultimately, I fight back against that thing that's threatening me. Maybe this is from some dark witchcraft. It must not be from heaven. Can he prove this is from heaven? This is another group of folks who are responding to Jesus. Opposition rising up. Even as the disciples rose up in faith, there was opposition all around Jesus. Skeptical, unbelieving. Some of us may be there. We hear the word of Christ. We, we, we see, see all this happiness and you're just skeptical, unbelieving. Prove it, Lord. One event, two very different responses. But what neither side denies is that something happened. You catch that? Neither side denies that something happened. A person who could not speak, a person who could not hear, bound by demonic power, is freed and healed. Nobody denies that claim. What's undeniable is that people are witnessing great power. They agree, even if they differ on where that power came from or, or what's um, understanding where it was, they, they agree. They don't question that something supernatural is happening in Jesus. Something beyond themselves is going on. I don't think that was supernatural. But, but here is the third response, right? Here's the third. So one response is that people are amazed by who God is. Another response is that people uh, are, are skeptical and unbelieving. But here's the third response, not in the text, but I think this is where many of us find ourselves. I think we have the sad capacity to stare the work of Jesus in the face and just walk away unchanged. Right? We, we, we stare the work of Jesus in the face and, and we explain it away. We walk away. Our biggest threat to receiving this teaching potentially is our ability to be unaffected by who Jesus is. Are, are we too easily distracted? Are we oversensitized? Are we overloaded with information? Are, have, we be, have we been desensitized by YouTube, by the global environment in which we live? Are we able to be affected by the work by the miracle of Jesus. Because what's happening in Christ is of cosmic proportions. It changes everything, does it not? It affects everything that comes after him. Great displays of power demand response, do they not? You can't just walk away as if nothing happened. We have to respond to this display of power they require us to ask, what does this mean? What are the effects of what has just happened? How should I live? How should my life be different? Thinking about great displays of power, I was trying to think of an illustration. Imagine being there when the first atomic bomb was tested in the des desolate sands of uh, New Mexico, Los Alamos, in 1945. The people who were there, they, you can go on, they, you can read their accounts, you can see pictures. They knew immediately that their lives, that their trajectory of World War II, that the trajectory of the world was changed forever, irreversibly changed. They, they witnessed a display of physical power unlike anything the world had ever seen. But what did it mean? 
right? They were competing, uh, competing opinions about understanding what they just saw. I mean, there was and still is disagreement on that fact, right? Was the atomic bomb the, the saving of tens of thousands of lives in the end of World War II, or was it the or the destruction of tens or thousands of lives in the beginning of the Cold War? Was it the uh, way civilization will end, or is it the protection against future world wars? Is it scientific glory, or is it the expression, a horrible expression of where our minds can take us in, into power and death and destruction? People disagree. Right? Reports from the research team itself, the men who were there, who had to put on suntan lotion and masks and lay down even miles away from the blast site, initially had euphoria and joy because they had been working on this project for years and years, and, and it worked. Success, joy. But then one person writes, a chill soon set on those who were present. A soberness. Expressions of horror and remorse were especially present in their later writings. As it came over them, what just happened? What have we just unleashed? One thing was clear. They knew in this great display of power that a response was required. They couldn't just walk away. The world was different. They had to respond. The, the nation had to respond. The world had to respond. The, and it's like this with a person, the work of Jesus. He, he, he explodes onto the stage of world history. And we need to respond. He leaves people in shock. No one who saw Jesus, this is a historical reality, no one who encountered Jesus uh, walked away and just had no opinion. They didn't doubt the miraculous nature of his life. But what did it mean? What did it mean? That's the question for this morning. Lord, teach us about your power. Teach us about your power. What does it mean, what you're doing in Jesus? Because in Luke 11, Jesus teaches us the most important thing is not being witness to an event. It's not just seeing an event, not just seeing God's power, but how we respond, right? How we understand and interpret what God has done and then how we are changed as a result. That's the most important thing. And in Luke, we see the bulk of what I read was Jesus explaining, here is what happened. And so we, we see a display of God's power through Jesus in the driving out of a demon that had made a man mute. So what does it mean? What does it mean? That's the question everyone was asking. The crowd was amazed. The crowd was skeptical. Where did it come from? This wasn't Jesus' first rodeo, right? People had been seeing him do these type of things for a couple of years now and, and had been jumping to different assumptions. Was it a sign of future political glory? Was it from Satan? Could he prove it? Was he, was he another prophet in the line of the Old Testament? Was it from heaven or not? What is going on? So what do you think it means? Are you, a, are you amazed? Are we amazed? Are we skeptical? Or are we in that third camp? Right? It doesn't mean much to me. My life is so distant from him. We live our lives as, as though this power weren't displayed, that the, this power were, were not continuing real today. That whatever happened in Jesus, it certainly doesn't impact me. It certainly doesn't change my life today. Great for the mute man. I'm glad God did this. Right? Great, 
great for the start of the church. I'm glad Jesus died and rose again. I, I can be in heaven. Great for the history books. But no, this, this is great for us today. This is great news for the church. This is great news. Look at what it says in verse 20. As Jesus himself interprets the event for those who are watching it happen. He says, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's come upon us. If, if I'm casting out demons by the finger of God, it's, it means that the arrival of the reign and the rule of God, the kingdom of God has come upon us. That's what Jesus says this means. In my miracles, in healing of the blind and the lame and the mute, in, in my accomplishments, what does this mean? The kingdom of God is, has arrived. This is good news. And, and if the kingdom arrived, then Jesus has won victory over Satan as well. That's another thing it means. He is stronger than the enemies of God's people. Look at verse 21 and 22. The, the text assumption, e even, um, even, the, the text, or even the folks who don't believe in Jesus, they assume that Satan is active, that he's ruling a kingdom, that he's out to cause destruction. They assume these things. They assume Satan has a kingdom and possessions, but Jesus said, I am stronger. I have authority. I, I can bound Satan and I will conquer him and, and, and uh, he no longer will be in control. Far from being an agent of Beelzebub, as the Pharisees wonder, the healing power of Jesus displays that he can take Satan's plunder, that he is stronger than our enemy. God's kingdom has arrived. That's one example of how God's kingdom has arrived in me, Jesus says. When you see this mute man speak, you're seeing the arrival of God's, of God's dominion, of, God's, of his space, of his authority on earth as it is in heaven. This long-awaited, this prophesied, this hope-for kingdom now breaking into the world through Jesus. That's good news. This was, this was the longing of the Old Testament. Here's just one example in Isaiah 35. The prophet writes, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you. What are some of the signs that He's come? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer, the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush in the desert places, in the wilderness. God is doing a new thing in his kingdom. There is life springing up from where there was death, where there was desolation. God is pouring out his life and, and his spirit. In Jesus, we begin to get a foretaste of this. We, we, we begin to get uh, a taste, an expression of this description of his forever kingdom. We begin to experience it. And hear this, even if this kingdom is not fully present, and I hope for all of our sakes that it's not fully present, right, in the, in the pain and the suffering of this world. We know that it's not already here in its completion. But even if it's not, the kingdom has arrived in Jesus. It is, it is already here and yet still coming. Have you ever stood in a, in a subway or in a train station and for a while there, there's, there's nothing on the track and you're waiting and you're waiting, you're waiting like the, the, the centuries of the Old Testament waiting for the train to arrive. And then all of a sudden, the, the first couple cars come barreling down the tunnel. 
has the train arrived, right? It's, it's right in front of you. It's still moving. Has it arrived or not? You can hear the squeal of its brakes. You can, you can feel the hot air hitting your face. You can smell the train. You can, it, it's fully present in your midst, but is it arrived? Yes, but not completely, right? The train's right in front of you. Is it there or not? We experience its effects, but we don't have yet the full experience of getting on the train and heading off into eternal life. That's a little bit what the, what the kingdom of God is like. We, we begin to taste its, its, its first fruits. The train didn't depart when Jesus went to heaven, when Jesus ascended. He has sent the Spirit to His people. He has sent His Holy Spirit to the church. And through the Spirit, the cars are still pulling into the station. That's what, that's what we're experiencing, how we're living. The effects of God's kingdom here and now, changed lives, new hearts, sometimes dramatic signs of God's power, but even better, the receiving of God's favor, of His grace, the receiving of repentance and salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit to know God is with me, to know God is pouring out His love into into my heart in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. That's, That's the kingdom of God at work. That's the gift of His Holy Spirit. Not just the dramatic signs, though yes, those too, both and. And so that with the arrival of God's kingdom, the overpowering of Satan's rule, a new reality has opened up for God's people. A brand new reality, new potential, new life. And so what would it look like for us to walk in this more and more? As a church, what would it look like for us as disciples, followers of Jesus, to walk in the reality of this new kingdom more and more? God's kingdom has arrived. We're not only residents of the kingdom of God, we're participants. Participants in how it unfolds and grows on earth as it is in heaven. Gathering on Sunday is good, but it doesn't mean by default that we're participating in the kingdom. We need to hear this, right? As his disciples, let's cry out, Lord, teach us about your kingdom power every day. Teach us about your kingdom power, how how you, by your spirit, will work through me for your kingdom. Teach us to see where you're moving, to believe what you're calling us to do, to love your ways and act upon them. Teach us, Lord. I I believe God desires for us to pursue Christ-formed passions with with God-sized ambitions In this life, that's what God desires for each of us. He desires His church to lead the way in justice, in peace, in breaking the chains of oppression, in in freeing those who, who are in bondage to despair or depression, in bringing reconciliation, in standing up for life for those who are not yet born, and in dignity for those who are at the end of their lives. Dignity is those created in God's image. This is what God desires. This is, these are the fruits of the kingdom spread out into the earth through his church. So what are your passions? Right? Where, where has God uniquely shaped you and, and, and formed in you and given you gifts and experience and life situation and, and connections? Where has God uniquely shaped and placed you for his kingdom? Because he has. If you follow him, if you worship him as Lord, he is using you in his kingdom. Where is that? Let's let's find those places as a church and move forward in his kingdom. 
And remember the prayer, as Bill unpacked last week, Father, make your name holy, right? Hallowed be your name, that's what it means. Make your name holy. Let your kingdom come. That's our prayer. That's our desire. The kingdom of God is among us, and even more so as the day of Christ approaches. More and more. And so this is what the power means, right? This, the display of Jesus' power in so many ways in the gospel, this is what it means. The kingdom of God is here. But what does it insist upon? All right, what is the insisted response that Jesus says in this text? He makes his point in verse 23, if you have your scripture. And I'll put it up here. He gives one of the consequences for what his power means. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus' life, the display of God's power through him, demand response. In our culture, he's often written off. He's a great man. He's a legend. He's a teacher. He's, he's a misunderstood teacher. People spend all their time uh, blasting Christians, and often rightfully so, but they don't deal with Jesus. And then Jesus gets casually dismissed as, as a relic of history. Or, or arrogantly shaped into whatever image suits us, right? We can make Jesus into whatever image we want. But to do this is to ignore the historical evidence, to ignore what the Bible affirms about who Jesus is. Even the people who witnessed Jesus, who didn't choose to follow him, even those who killed him, concluded that something supernatural was going on. We have to wrestle with that. He can't be dismissed, ignored, forgotten. What will we say about his work? What will, what will we call it? What response will I give the display of Jesus' power? What do we do? To come back to the beginning, what do we do when we stand face-to-face with the work of Jesus? In our own lives, in the lives of others, how do we respond? Maybe it's a dramatic healing. Maybe it's an undeniable sense of his presence when you've called out for him, and all of a sudden, he is there by the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe it's the forgiveness of sin and the removal of guilt, true weight and burden broken. You say you haven't seen a miracle? I mean, what is it when someone bent on destruction and self-loathing becomes a person of love and service, right? What's happening when someone who, who has convinced themselves toward revenge turns to forgiveness and to love? What, what happens when we love what we used to despise or mock, when, when everything about our, our orientation, our convictions changes, what, what's going on there? I used to think just fanatical loony bins would, would raise their hands in worship. Crazy people. It's just one tiny example, right? What, we, spend, we spend our time, our money, our, <laughs> our energies on, on things that are for God's will and not our own. That's not natural, right, to spend our money on things for God's kingdom, to spend our time to give ourselves, to sacrifice on things for the Lord's kingdom. That's not natural. What's happening there? And let's not forget, even apart from the anecdotal experiences, the word of God, the record, the spirit-inspired record of, of God's work in history for the church, not simply a record of what happened, but ongoing proclamation of God's power God's will, ongoing power to change lives 
that, that he has given his church? What will we do when we stare face to face with the work of Jesus? Jesus says, rally to me. That's the first response. Rally to me in love, in service, in worship. You can't be neutral about me. It's not logical. It's not even logical to be neutral about Jesus. Be hot or cold. Rally to me. If we don't gather to him, we will not stand as a people. This, this word scatters is not a good word. If you, if you do a study on the word scatters, it's, it's almost always a bad thing. Right? The people who built the Tower of Babel, what did God do? He scattered them to the ends of the earth. In Leviticus 26 is one of the many curses as the people, if they chose to disobey the Lord's law, what would he do? He'd scatter them to the nations. When Jesus was talking about his flock, what does the wolf, the destroyer, come to do? Scatter the flock. This is not a good thing to be scattered. If we don't gather to Christ, we scatter. Rally to Jesus. Gather to Jesus. That's our option. We either be divided and weakened and apart from God, apart from safety, apart from the community we were designed for, or scattered. I'm a diplomat by nature in, in general. I, I like to draw together. I like to give the benefit of the doubt. I, I like to, I resist extremes. I really don't like it when Christians make everything black and white. Every issue of theology, every issue of practice, black and white. It's got to be this way. Or it can't be that way. I resist extremes, but there are times, right? There are ideas where neutrality is a moral and spiritual impossibility. And how we respond to the power and the work of Jesus is one of those times. We cannot be neutral. Rally to Jesus. There's a time that has come to, to choose a side and sit on the side with Christ. So how will we respond? God's power in Jesus insists upon decision. Are we for him? Are we for him privately and publicly? Are we all in for Jesus? Because when, he dis when God displays his power through Jesus, it means the kingdom of God is here. One stronger than evil is here. How will we respond? Let's be amazed. Let's be the, the response of those who are amazed at God's work, who decided to follow. Let's be on mission in the kingdom of God. And let's pray together. Father, we know our own hearts. We know our desire to go our own way. We each, like sheep, have gone astray. We know that about ourselves. And it's by grace, it's by your work that you, you draw us to yourself. You draw us to, to living water. You draw us to life. And so we pray that as a church family, that you would continue to rally us together, not only as a community, but rally us together around the Lord Jesus. Father, please do this. And as you do that, we pray that the mission of the kingdom would move forward in powerful and glorious and wonderful ways. Please work among us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, if, if you're serving communion, please...